Hello, I'm Michaela, And I'm Cooper. And we are back with another South Sydney High School Science Podcast. First, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording. We have recently noticed that there's been listeners from overseas in America, Greece, Vietnam, Poland and Germany. So shout out to you guys and thanks for tuning in. Today we're here to talk with Colin Kong, a former student of South Sydney High School who went on to study both medical science and medicine at UNSW. After graduating university, Colin completed his internship and residency at Liverpool Hospital and is currently working as a doctor in Canberra Hospital Eye Clinic. Let's give him a call. Hi Colin, this is Michaela. Hi, and I'm Cooper. Yeah, so how are you today? (laughs) I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? We're good, thank you. Yeah, it's an honour to speak. We're both Year 11 biology students, so we're actually quite interested into what you guys, well, you have to say. Absolutely. That's great. So first question was, um, can you give us a simple explanation on your research into cancer treatment? Yeah, sure. So... Um, you know, to give you some background, basically cancer is, is uh, when the kind of normal cellular processes get taken out of whack and taken out of balance, and you can get a, a population of cells that just become really unregulated in their growth. Um, I guess the example I often use is that sometimes it's a bit like when you've got uh, someone driving a car, and instead of the normal kind of accelerating, braking, accelerating, braking, they're more just like banging it on the accelerator and not stopping. Um, and so basically, you know, these cells can grow and grow and grow without any regulation and they can spread throughout the body until the body doesn't cope. So one of the, the genes that cancer cells rely on is this gene called dyscarin, um, which was the, the gene I was looking at. And, you know, dyscarin has multiple roles in the cell, but we've found even prior to my research that it's quite highly upregulated in cancer cells, uh, meaning that they, they express a lot of it. And so my research was essentially just looking at the effects of, of silencing this gene on, on the tumor cells and what happens when you um, essentially knock out the gene. And, you know, in my case, I was specifically looking at neuroblastoma cells, um, which is, you know, a very common cancer uh, amongst children, essentially. So, like, how do you look at molecular targets for the treatment of neuroblastoma? The way I did it was, you know, basically you use, you, you grow the cells in the lab um, and then you introduce this type of uh, silencing technique called um, small interfering RNA, which is where you're inserting a little bit of this um, DNA-like material into the cell, and this kind of interrupts or interferes with the normal expression of this gene. So you're effectively knocking out the expression of this gene, and then you're tracking that kind of growth over a number of you know weeks and months. And we did some long-term cultures over a period of months, and we did some short-term cultures to see the immediate effects of what happens. And then we also did similar experiments in in mouse models, where uh, essentially you we essentially you know injected these tumor cells into the into the subcutaneous tissue of mice just under the skin and watched the tumor grow. And then at a certain size, we'd introduce the treatment of knocking down the cells of knocking down the genes and seeing what effect that had on the actual um, tumor size and whether it continued to grow or stopped growing or went backwards essentially. Wow, that sounds pretty cool. Um, so, like, from, um, from your tumor rod- modules in the mice, um, did you discover anything else from your research? Yeah, so, I mean, the overall results, science is a funny thing where you do a lot of work to answer sometimes a very simple question. Um, 
So, you know, the, the, the crux of it was what happens when you do this and that. The short answer is this, was that it actually is effective in, in, you know, at least slowing the progress in some, in some cell lines uh, of, this, of the growth of these cells. So, you know, you can't just do it in the one cell line. You've got to take multiple cell lines, meaning that these uh, sample cells from tumors from multiple different um, patients, essentially, and so, you know, in some patients or in some cell lines, it did actually stop the growth completely, and in some, it sort of just slowed it. Um, so, yeah, it was a good result to get, um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of work just for a very simple answer, essentially. Yeah, I mean, to even find something that just slows it down and stops it, it's, it's just, remarkable. It's remarkable because you can see, like, over time, like, it's just become bigger and bigger and bigger and like to find something that potentially could stop it is just a remarkable achievement. I mean studies have shown that Australia is the number one hotspot for skin cancer so technology like that is amazing. Yeah and look certainly certainly when you look at um, cancer treatments today you know in the past at least a lot of it has been a bit like a, a to put it crudely, it's a bit like a, a shotgun or a poison approach where you're just, you know, you're, you're introducing a chemical into the body which, you know, is going to affect the cells that proliferate most quickly, um, which in most cases is the cancer cells. But unfortunately, it obviously does have, can have quite a lot of side effects because it affects the other tissues in the body. So, you know, the point of this research essentially is to, is to prove the concept that, you know, you can, if you have a target in mind already, the whole point of targeted therapy is that you know you're specifically targeting cancer cells. That normal cells, if you if you knock this gene down, it doesn't cause too much of an issue. But if you knock it down in the context of a rapidly proliferating, aggressive cell um, or you know cancer, that it will be disproportionately, far disproportionately affected. Um, so that's essentially the goal. You, you know, you're exactly right. You know, I think I'm pretty sure Queensland actually has the global highest incidence of skin cancer rates. And so, you know, obviously my research wasn't in skin cancer, but the goal of cancer treatments these days is to really try and get a targeted therapy where it doesn't affect the normal cells of the body, but it really affects the cancer cells. And so, you know, this kind of research is hopefully gearing towards that um, in the future. So another question that we had was, um, did you have any issues with using mice for your research? Uh, like ethical issues? Or um, <laughs> like, yeah, ethical. Yeah, look, it is, it is a little confronting. Um, you know, I like animals a lot, and I, yeah, I think mice are cute. And the mice I, work, I worked with were quite specifically cute because they were actually a, a breed that didn't have any hair, so they were like these little fats of skin, and they were very docile. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so look, it is certainly confronting, um, and it's something yeah, I think you have to ask yourself: is it is this worth doing? Is this something that you know? Because it's not without a cost. Yeah. But I think if you keep the bigger picture in mind, that you know, cancer is this disease that you know, in particularly in the in the cells that I was in the in the type of cancer that I was researching, which is called neuroblastoma. You know, it affects it's a cancer of children essentially, and you know. You know, there are children who are dying from this, there are children who are suffering, there are the associated families who are going through horrible um, things, just having to deal with this diagnosis and this disease. I think if you keep that bigger picture in mind, then, you know, if, if your research can help these kids and these families in any way, I think it's, I think it's, the wor- it's worth doing, essentially. You have to weigh up that for yourself. So. Yeah. Um, did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? 
um, to begin with. Funnily enough, it was only actually after, or almost towards the end of HSC, that I really decided I actually wanted to do medicine. Um, I, for me, it was very much like a, a weighing of decisions. Like, was it, uh, uh, I really had to sit down towards the end of HSC and just think about what I wanted to do, which I hadn't done up until that point. And I think medicine is a really good degree, uh, degree and, and career path because you know it's it's a really good mix of things. It's a really good mix where number one and most probably most importantly, you get to help people directly. You know, people come with issues and problems, and you, you know, diagnose it and you treat it, and then they come back and like, oh yeah, it's much better, or it's this, and it's you know, it's a really it's really fulfilling in that way yeah. when you can helping people and seeing the effects directly. Um, but also, I really like, you know, as I said, I really like the science side of things. I really like the, the medicine and how the body works and how things how can go wrong. It's really fascinating to me. Um, and I guess the last thing that drew me towards medicine is that it's, it's reasonably hands-on. Um, certainly, examining patients or you're performing procedures or, you know, hopefully one day doing surgery on a regular basis. It's, I really like that aspect of just getting involved and actually physically doing things with your hands. Mm. Um, yeah, that's what drew me to medicine, I suppose. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. So, um, with like your medical course, how did you enter it, and like how did you enter the medicine side of your course? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, there are probably two main pathways to getting into medicine. Um, you can get in essentially straight after high school, where you do an undergraduate degree, uh, where you don't do anything beforehand. You go straight into medicine, and then you finish your five or six year degree, and you graduate and you become a doctor or you can do a postgraduate degree which is where you do any kind of undergraduate degree first whether it's sciences or arts or commerce or anything like that and then um, you do a four-year postgraduate degree and most universities are kind of uh, sort of the mix of, you know, of both in New South Wales. I when I was doing my HSC there was a test that we had which it's been replaced but it was a test called the UMAT um, and essentially I didn't do very well in that test, and that came halfway through the HSC. So that kind of bummed me out for the second half of the HSC, um, and I knew that I couldn't get into undergraduate medicine with that score. Um, so I actually, and that's why I kind of, in the last few months, I really had to top up whether I really wanted to do it or whether it was just a thought in the back of my mind. Um, but essentially the path I took was uh, a kind of in-between path where I ended up doing medical science at UNSW, and they had this internal transfer program so that after a couple of years, they grade students and they'll take a, a, a small proportion, like 15 students of the whole year. And they'll say, okay, you can finish your medical science degree. And then after that, you can join halfway through the medicine degree. So it's a, it's a weird pathway, um, but it worked for me. And it gave me a time, yeah, to, to get a bit better at that UMAT test, which again, isn't really there anymore. But... I think the key thing that I would say probably to most to, to, to HSC students and pre-HSC students is that, you know, HSC feels like the end of the world. It feels like, you know, it's, it's the be-all and end-all, and if you don't get exactly what you want, then you'll never be exactly what you want. Um, but certainly I'm an example of when I didn't get what I want uh, or didn't go exactly the way as planned, but you can still, it's just the beginning. Um, you know, even if, for example, even if I didn't get into this program, I could have tried for postgraduate. And a lot of my friends who, who went that way actually got into postgraduate. Yeah. So, you know, don't stress. You know, it's probably not the question you're asking, but I would say, you know, <laughs> don't stress about the HC too 
too much work hard. But um, it's not the end of the world, and certainly there are pathways after you finish your high school that um, become available and aren't as obvious. So assuming you've had like some form of ER or OT experience, what was the coolest or grossest thing you've ever seen? <laughs> so I've had reasonable experience in both. Um, as a junior doctor, you, you do work uh, at least one three-month stint as an emergency doctor, and I did a couple of those. There are probably some overly gruesome things that I probably shouldn't share, but I, I think one of the interesting things that I have seen was that I remember once on a night shift overnight, there was a, uh, there's this, what's this called? There's this thing that called a met call, which is where it's like an emergency call where something is happening in the hospital and you have to go down and figure out, about, figure out what's happening. Not just you, obviously, but the whole medical, the whole team. And in this context, it was, um, something that was happening in the car park and there was a met call down in the car park. So a few of the doctors went down there. And then what had happened is this, um, taxi had pulled into the car park and essentially this poor lady was giving birth. Um, like as a pattern actually within the taxi uh, in the car park. So, yeah, watching a baby to be delivered in a car park in a hospital inside the back of a taxi, that was, I think that was a bit gross and a bit <laughs> cool at the same time. Yeah. And everything turned out well, really luckily, so that's really good. But, yeah, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, I'm sure it would be because it's not your normal environment. Yeah, not your everyday situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so a few students that um, potentially want to go into medicine, they've got a question that says, um, have you got any cool stories about things you've seen or learnt about in medicine? It's hard to pick one thing. Uh, I think everything in medicine is reasonably interesting. And I guess that's, that's the good part about, you know, after, after school and after uni, just picking something you like. Everything, almost everything about the topic that you're working in or studying is quite interesting. I guess, okay, so one example is... Um, even even as so at the moment where I'm in, I'm working as a, an eye registrar, meaning that I'm predominantly dealing with eye problems. But occasionally, you just you re, you have situations which call upon the previous skills that you've built up. So, for example, like a few months ago, I was um I was in a ward in the hospital where uh, I was examining a, a patient eye for this eye problem that he had, and again similarly, there was a met hall just next door to where I was in in the hospital. And so, you know, obviously it's been a little while since I did any general medical things. So just looking at the eye, I was like, oh, I wonder what's happening next door. Maybe I'll just pop my head in. <laughs> and um, actually the patient, turns out the patient had undergone a, a cardiac arrest, meaning that essentially they, they you know, their heart had stopped beating um, for whatever reason. So, And being the only doctor there with a bunch of nurses, you're like, Oh crap! It's been a while, but I've got to run this thing at least until the emergency team gets there. So, which is can be, you know, anywhere between a minute or two to a few minutes um, or five minutes. So, essentially, uh, <laughs> you just have to go back and recall your previous experience and what you had. So, you know, we ended up starting CPR on that person, and I ended up standing at the end of the bed managing the airway, which is one of the other important parts of managing the situation. And it turns out this person had essentially probably choked on some food and um, had been able to unable to breathe and that went into what's called a hypoxic arrest meaning that because there wasn't enough ventilation or through their lungs yeah. their heart had stopped breathing um so that was a daunting experience but it's kind of cool like in that you know even though it's been a little while you retain some of the skills that you learned in this way and it was actually really and it was really good because the patient ended up having quite a good outcome they ended up you know getting a retain return of circulation and they 
went to ICU and then they came out of ICU and they were doing a lot better. Um, but yeah, you learn some interesting, cool skills in medicine. Sometimes, at least, you know, not really how to fix everything, but how to manage things acutely, um, at least until the cavalry arrives. So, like, on an everyday basis, so what's your average day as an eye doctor? Um, at the moment, it's I, I predominantly run the eye emergency clinic. So it's a clinic where, you know, if someone comes in with an eye problem to an emergency department or to their GP or to the optometrist and they're not sure what to do, often we get the phone call or they come into our clinic. Um, so my everyday, most of my everyday side of work is, is dealing with those kinds of patients that have come in. It's predominantly an outpatient service, meaning that they don't stay in hospital, but they've come in with a problem and, you know, you just try and diagnose and deal with them. You know, we do that with a bunch of different um, tools, um, predominantly one of which is called Flitland, which is this really odd device, which is basically like a big microscope mounted towards the patient on a table and it just looks into their eye and it just helps take a really close look at the eye. Um, so most of my day is just dealing with those patients. And people come in with really different and interesting problems. There's, you know, lots of things that can go wrong with the eye. There's glaucoma, there's diabetes, there's uh, retinal detachments, which, you know, need urgent surgery. So most of my day is spent running that clinic. And it's, um, it's quite interesting. There's lots of interesting things that come through, essentially treating those patients and following them up and making sure they're better and then eventually discharging them. That sounds like a really, really busy day sometimes. Um, so what made you originally want to get into eyes? Because like thinking about it, it's not something that someone wants to go, oh, I want to be an eye doctor. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I would say it's, it's, it's pretty much the same as why I wanted to do medicine. It's like a really, ophthalmology is a really good uh, specialty in that, you know, Sometimes the, the, the treatments that you do, most of the time people come in with an acute problem, but there's an acute solution to a lot of these problems. Um, and then, you know, vision is such an incredibly foundational part of, you know, human experience and, and, and people's lives. And that, you know, when it's threatened, it's, it's obviously a very um, daunting idea to the people. So they can get quite anxious about what's going on with their eyes. So when you can fix those problems, you know, again, it's just incredibly feeling on my side of things and it's really great to see people you know have this problem to come in and then go out feeling better ophthalmology in terms of medicine like it was more of a stepwise process i didn't really realize i didn't really choose ophthalmology until a bit later uh in my medical degree i did one week of it in my medical degree it's not usually a big focus of medical school so i did one i think about one week of it and i really liked it one week of placement it was really interesting. It was a really good mix of, of medical knowledge and then surgery as well. So it's a, you can do completely medical ophthalmology or you can do completely, almost completely surgical ophthalmology. So it's got that wide variety as well. And I really like the idea of being quite specialized and just knowing one particular thing in huge depth and really understanding things deeply about one organ and how it fits into everything else. I think it's a, it's a really good specialty in that respect. And then you have really cool toys that you get to play with. Again, not toys, but tools, but actually toys. Yeah, so um, we've got a few more questions for you, but touching back on your um, targets for treatment of neuroblastoma, um, you mentioned that your research focuses on targeting specific cancerous cells. Um, to, you can't say that it will give um, the guaranteed answer, but to give like people out there hope that there will be 
um, a cure. How close do you feel that this lab research is getting to being able to be practically applied to patients out there? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good question. It's, it's a hard question to answer because the point of my research was essentially a proof of concept, which is to say that, you know, you can actually target this gene and it will have this effect. And if we can find a way to do that in the body, uh, that it will hopefully be really effective. Um, you know, unfortunately, well, I won't say unfortunately, but, you know, a part of the challenge of medicine is that things, uh, of science is that things don't exactly always turn out as planned. So, you know, you can do all this research in a petri dish and in animal models. So you start with research in the petri dish and you can, you know, you can prove the concept that, look, if I do this in the petri dish, it makes the cells not grow as well. And then you can do a similar model in animals and then, um, you know, it will have a similar effect. But you'll sometimes find in science that each step doesn't always translate into the same effect in the bigger model. So, for example, it's no guarantee that if you can actually knock down discarin in a human model that it would have the same effect that we've seen in the lab or in mice. Um, and I suppose that's one of the challenges of science that, you know, we always um, have to be guarded in how much we can say yeah. uh, it's going to be truly effective. The other difficult thing to, to say about that is that, you know, because this is a proof of concept, you know, in terms of actual gene therapies to date, about which is to say, I don't think there are actually any current, you know, widespread gene therapies today where we can actually target the genes within the whole human body and knock them down. I think that side of medicine, uh, sorry, that side of science is definitely in the works, but I don't think they have anything yet to definitively as a clinical treatment, able to do that. So that's probably more the limiting step than, than um, the proof of concept side of things. It's figuring out a way to systematically knock down genes in the human body or even specifically target genes in the human body in a, in a practical clinical way and to prove that as well. So I think once you've got that mechanism of being able to do that, then there's a wide variety of which discarin is one of them of, of genes which are potential options for trying to target these cells. So it's probably hard. I'd say we're probably still a little while off um, in terms of being able to do that. But certainly, I do think that that research is really in the works in terms of trying to figure out ways to systemically do that in the human body. Yeah. Um. In relation to that, do you ever think like because we've learned in bio about genetic variation? Um. Do you think like over time the human body will just kind of adapt to if you do start using the treatment on the patients? Do you think that? Um, it will just adapt to like the next generation and the next generation and then through the end it will just completely just be erased in a way? You mean in terms of the, the like the cancer being like the adapted ca- to it? Like the cancer, like being like people being able to like adapt to it and possibly like cure it itself? Yeah, um, it's hard to say. I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because, you know, as part of biology, you, you have this, you know, foundational elements of evolution are uh, genetic variation, but also selective pressures. And so the reason why cancer is the disease that it is, and it's so widespread, and, and the disease often of the older kind of people is that theoretically, this is my understanding of it at least, the selective pressure to force that out of the genome is already is not it's already past the point at which people have reproduced. So, for example, you know, if if a disease strikes people when they're sixty, there's no real selective pressure for the for the genes to be kicked out of the system because people have already reproduced by that age. Yeah. So people will have already passed on those genes. So with cancer, you know, maybe with neuroblastoma, that is um, that is probably more relevant because. 
uh, you know, if people are, who are affected are younger. But I don't think so because, in a sense, part of the reason why you have cancer in the beginning is because of genetic mutations and variation, and that's what allows these cells to to really kick into this overdrive and be unregulated because they've mutated in that way. Yeah. So it's a kind of double-edged sword. Um, you know, it, in a sense, it causes that, but in a sense, it also provides the means to get rid of it. So I don't think it's going to go away on its own. And ironically, the more you treat people and the better treatments you get, the less the selective pressure is on filtering out these unhelpful genes in, in the human white genome. Um, but that's a separate ethical issue on its own. Yeah. Um, so the final question um, for our listeners out there, um, out of everything that you've learned through your journey to becoming a doctor, um, what is the main piece of advice you would like to share um, with our listeners, particularly for the students? Yeah, I would say, as though I have any particular wisdom to share, I think that's, that's, that's a big question in of its own. I would say probably the same thing as what I what I had harped on before. You know, work hard. HSC is important, and it it can be a really good gateway pathway into getting into what you want. But at the same time, it's not the be all and end all, and things don't always go to plan. Certainly, they didn't always go to plan for me, um, and I'm sure in the future they won't always go to plan. But learning to to roll with the punches, learning to adapt yourself to what comes, and learning to pick yourself up after the kind of knockdown is part of life, and it's part of how you're going to be a more helpful part of the community. It's going to be part of how you're going to be a more successful person. It's you know don't panic too much, just deal with what comes and find what you want to do and really work towards that. And I think, you know, that's a good way to, to get through life, essentially. Yeah, well, um, on behalf of everyone listening and everyone here, um, I'd like to thank you for actually giving us the opportunity to talk to you and giving us really good advice. No, my pleasure. Um, I hope it was helpful. <laughs> it was very. I hope you have a good day. No worries, you too. Thanks so much. Thank Bye. You. Thanks for listening in to this episode of the South Sydney High School Science Cast. A big thank you to Miss Mifsud and the Year 12 Biology students for collating the questions and to Mr Benson for editing this podcast. A special thank you to Colin Kong for his insight into his journey and the advice for our students. If you're an expert in the field of science or know someone who is, please get in touch at sshsciencecast at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for tuning in and we'd love to continue this learning journey with you. Bye! Bye. 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 Say you later. Goodbye. Ha, ha, ha.